If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And as we're more than halfway through 2023, Neil and I figured we'd each highlight five of our favorite games of the year so far, choosing from both indie and AAA horror titles alike. And in typical Safe Room fashion, if one of us mentions an entry that is higher on the other's list, We'll hold off talking about it until we arrive at the other's placement in the ranking of said title. So Neil, as is customary, I will give you the honor of debuting your number five pick so far for 2023. So far, yeah, and I think we should definitely caveat that this is bloody hard already. Yes. <laughs> it's, um, you know, even compared to last year, I'm looking for a lesson going, oh, delete that off, yeah. <laughs> delete that off. Thinking, well, but you can include it at the end of the year, and, you know. But then there's other stuff coming, and it's like, oh, so yeah, it it was difficult to sort of formulate this list, um, and you know, as we always say with these things, they'll probably change somewhat by the time we get to the uh, end of year thing, you know. Um, so, I will start with my number five, which is Dead Island Two. Have still yet to play that. The zombie well, games that you, you always bring to the table, they always seemingly pass me by in the night. <laughs> this was a game I rooted for for multiple reasons. You know, Dan Buster Studio have had it hard over the years. Um, you know, been basically eaten up by Crytek and then gone over to Deep Silver, which has been taken over by several companies over that time. And all the while, you know, they were the original Time Splitters developers and yeah, and yet they still survive for all that, and they've had to pick up the mess of other people's games a couple of times. Uh, Homefront Revolution was a great example of that, and they did it again here. We you know with the uh, Jaeger Studios uh, who made Spec Ops: The Lion, who were supposed to be making Dead Island Two initially, that didn't test so well in its early time when it actually got shown to people, and then a whole bunch of other stuff happened. So the game just went so and. So, yeah, it was like a double redemption story for this game. It's like, you know, a studio that needed it and a game that needed to kind of 
fulfill the promise the series hasn't really got. You know, the, the tech land went off and made Dying Light, and that really did sort of do a lot of the things right that we'd needed in those games. Uh, you know, the Dead Island games were buggy things indeed back in the day. It's just fun. It's just great, big, sloppy, gory fun. Like that inventive, the the degradation of zombies in this is just, oh, yeah, it, it can be gnarly in all the best ways, you know, from the melting to the jaws swinging off, their hands being all broken and crippled again and like fingers like, yeah, just it's, it never gets boring doing that, you know, and I think it's tongue-in-cheek enough that it's got a bit of you know, fun and fire to it that I just didn't expect, to be honest. And, um, yeah, I mean, the island part of the name, a bit vague in that one sense, because, you know, it's LA and the island, but is that, yeah, earthquakes have basically made it an island unto itself, blah, 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 sort of thing. Escape from LA's plot, basically, um, as it turned out. <laughs> and... Uh, but yeah, it's just likable characters, interesting little bits and bobs here and there. And yeah, it's one of those games that's fun to co-op and just smash the crap out of things. With um, Yeah, it, it's not much more to say, really. It is by no means like you know, this intricate like masterpiece or anything, but it's way better than I think anyone anticipated. Even myself, you know, rooting for the studio as much as I did. It's what I wanted from a Dead Island game in so many ways. And I kind of want them to go back and retroactively fix those old games. As we go to the Tropical Island sort of scenario with the way this game plays. Because that would be amazing. That would that would just finally make that game what it should have been. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's my number five. You know, of the zombie games that you have brought to the table this year and, you know, in last year... Um, this is the one that I'm most eager to get to before you know we circle back at the end of the year and talk about our official games of the year um, because of the fact that you know the degradation system that you mentioned and also you know watching a fair amount of gameplay videos and whatnot online um, that is vastly more interesting to me than in Dying Light, which is more you know the parkour environmental traversal stuff. I'm very much boots on the ground. Let me shred, mutilate zombies. Uh, you know, to the best of my abilities and getting the feedback from the character models or just, you know, from the physics and whatnot um, makes me very excited to check this one out. And I played the original Dead Island back in college and remember it being, you know, intriguing from a new standpoint of zombie games, you know, breaking me out of my sort of left for dead um, rut, if you will, or that sort of framework with zombie games and seeing something a little more more open and at the same time having uh, a little bit of that I suppose, Dead Rising identity, right? Where you can sort of customize mm. weapons and whatnot and have fun uh, crafting new means of uh, dismemberment and whatnot. So yeah, Dead Island 2, definitely a game that I need to check out after, you know, add that to the list of things that I've been saying I need <laughs> to make time for uh, over the last year and whatnot. But my number five is going to be a little known game called Resident Evil 4. Not on my list. Not on your list. And I have to give the caveat that my number six if I was allowed one, would have been uh, Dead Space. Um, and so for, because, you know, in a year that is so stacked with uh, with remakes at this point, and granted, haven't gotten Silent Hill 2 yet, but for where we're at in the year so far, um, Resident Evil 4, 
from Capcom, I think, was the remake that stood out to me the most from a gameplay perspective, which I was honestly not expecting. Um, you know, mm. with Resident Evil 4, of course, same with Dead Space, I suppose. Um, both games that I loved when they came out. Uh, they came out, I got to those games at just the right time, I think, in when I was getting back into games um, after, you know, taking one of my hiatuses or whatever. Um, and immediately just kind of fulfilling not only the genre stuff that I love so much of horror, but more importantly, being a little more action-oriented um, and whatnot, yeah. which was more in line, I think, with the sensibilities of other games that I was playing at the time of their release. And the Resident Evil 4 remake, I think, just went above and beyond in terms of not only you know, the graphical uh, updates that come with it being a current-gen remake, but more importantly, has some very fundamental changes to gameplay that feel like they were from the original game, which I was not expecting. Mm. You know, with something like the Dead Space remake, it having that gravitational um, reworking of how Isaac can jump around to different platforms, it's like, that was great, but that's limited to certain environments. And with something like Resident Evil 4, the knife parry, which initially when I saw that in the trailers and the marketing for it, I was kind of like, okay, I feel like that's going to play like Nathan Drake's rope in a way where mm. it's like, you know, it's a cool mechanic, but it feels very foreign to the core experience from the original. Whereas, you know, in Uncharted, dropping that major um, piece of equipment in the fourth entry, I'm like, okay, well, this plays different than all the other games. So yeah. it wasn't as seamless of an introduction. Whereas I found the knife pairing in Resident Evil 4, it feels like it's a continuation of the original game. I don't necessarily change the way that I was previously playing, but I'm given a new tool. And yeah, the fact that they're able to incorporate the parry, not only when, you know, you go up against a big motherfucker with a chainsaw, but which is probably one of the <laughs> coolest little moments of the year for me, where it's like the first time that guy gets close to you with the saw and you know that meant certain death previously, this time around, you know, as we have uh, have said previously, you know, if the player is given a tool that they can utilize to get out of a near-death situation or a fatal mm -hmm. situation, it's better to have, you know, more options that are in line with the um, survival horror sensibilities of, you know, having items and equipment and whatnot and not wasting them uh, haphazardly. And ultimately, the fact that that knife becomes you know, a integral part of combat outside of just parrying. The fact that you can deflect mm -hmm. incoming projectiles, which when you were playing uh, Resident Evil 4 Vanilla, there were times when that would fuck you up because you're too engaged with one enemy and a guy off on the side hits you with an arrow and all of a sudden it makes you susceptible to more attacks and whatnot. Um, but ultimately, uh, the fact that Resident Evil 4 Remake was able to introduce side quests and things and making the player want to re-explore sections of the world again and, you know, having not only rewards associated with that, but new objectives and missions, hunting down mm. stronger monsters, based essentially mini bosses that again, didn't feel like they were overall intrusive to the overall narrative or the pacing of Resident Evil 4, um, which is a very difficult thing to do. The fact that you can yeah. include new content and it not feel like a sore thumb. And if anything, it just feels like a natural sort of, almost exploitation of a space and giving it very organic um, additions to it, whether that be narratively or just sort of mission objectives. Um, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, so it's just that, yeah, I think the interesting thing for this is that Resident Evil 2's remake was so different in a good way. Uh, it kind of stood out 
in its own way. Whereas this is such a good continuation of what was there before, because so much of what Resident Evil is now is still there, that it's almost too good for its own good, which is a mad thing to say. You know, like it, but it really is. It's like it feels too comfortable, too familiar in some ways, and you think. You know, like uh, when you get a good remaster of a film like that and it, it changes the way you see it, but it still feels like that old film as well. Just something like that, you know, and, and that's kind of what this feels like. And, you know, full credit you know, to Capcom in that regard. I think they've done an amazing job with this game in terms of, like, updating it in so many different little ways. And yet, if, you know, you recognise familiar beats, familiar storylines, everything feels the same, you know? But that's it. It's yeah. I, I really do feel like that. It is just so good at what it does. It kind of feels like it's cheating. You know, it, it doesn't feel like it's uh, deserving of like being higher. I, so I have a strange you know, relationship with this game anyway. The original, but this version is like yeah. I, I can't deny that it's good at, at all. I, I think there's aspects of it that you know, maybe questionable in how they went about it, but it's minimal you know like that it's um yeah my my only concern as ever as it was with the original is it does seem to push resident evil back a bit too close to the old action thing and like the you know yeah i think the knife parry thing is cool and it does as you say really just fit into the game like it was always there but for some reason it also just fills me with that sort of gnawing dread of like Really, are we, are we going down this path again, isn't it? Because, yeah, it, towards the end of Resident Evil, the last Resident Evil game, Village, and this, and it's like, no, come on, let's not go too far there, right? Let, let's try and draw it back and show that we can do survival horror. Because even like some of the scariest bits of that game in the original version don't quite feel the same here. You know, they don't, you know, I think it's actually they make some new bits that are good. But yeah, this this is pretty good. And yet here I am bitching and moaning about it. <laughs> I was going to say, you'll get your Code Veronica remake next. Don't you worry, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. And I, and I will be pickier about that as I was about this and about Resident Evil 3 and about 2. It's just, I think context goes into it. It's like, I don't mind different because sometimes that's better than getting what you want. And sure. Yeah, I think that, that's, just, that's the way I end up seeing this one. I mean, I've got a lot of nostalgia for this game, more so than you. So the fact that I got to return to this, and if anything, the action portion of it or the action sensibilities that it had that ultimately would, you know, not always for the better, uh, would rewrite some of the Resident Evil identity for a few years there to play the most refined version of that and to have those, you know, new mechanics, if anything, you know, just make the action that much stronger, but at the same time, Balancing that out with, you know, really difficult combat challenges. I don't know if you went and played any of those side missions, but some of the yeah. new side missions, they present really difficult challenges that if you didn't have a more action-oriented focus for this game and, you know, that being uh, exemplified here with the remake, those sections I don't think would work nearly as well because of the fact that it would feel artificially difficult. Whereas when you have this more action-oriented nature, uh, they feel right at home, as you said, and Last thing I'll say about Resident Evil 4 before detail, you tell us your uh, number four pick is that, you know, I found that largely this game d 
doesn't skip over or does skip over rather beats that I didn't necessarily care about or little moments mm. here and there to the degree that something like the Resident Evil 3 remake, which I just replayed before I had played Resident Evil 4 remake for the first time, um, you know, it avoids the mistakes of what came before it. Yeah. And that was probably the biggest surprise just because of personally how negative of a time I had with the Resident Evil 3 remake and how it fundamentally altered certain things that I really loved about it to the degree that with you with Resident Evil 2 remake, ex- you know, getting rid of that crocodile section and uh, a couple other sections that, you know, were really pivotal to your enjoyment of that game. That was not the case with Resident Evil 4 and what they did omit at the end of the day, I didn't feel fundamentally, uh, you know, hmm. altered my love of Resident Evil 4. And if anything, you know, this being my definitive uh, version of that game. But that's enough about Resident Evil 4. I'd love to hear what your number four pick is. So my number four pick is Incident at Grave Lake. By that's not on my list, but a very worthwhile addition. Yeah. So, you know, I am denied about, you know, Horrorbite Centuries being on here just because, you know, we, we do these things separately at the end of the year and all that. But, you know, if th- something stands out and it just keeps sticking with you, yeah, you kind of have to. And I think with my list, it does come down to that more than anything. It's games that have stuck with me in a way that others haven't. Maybe the other games have been better, like on a technical level or a gameplay level, but it's like whatever the game's doing. And, you know, this is a perfect example of that, you know. It's not exactly gameplay heavy. It's very light in that regard. It's very short. But I think when you compare and contrast with the fact that we had, you know, that uh, other alien game, came out the, the, the Grey Hill incident one, um, at the same time, which was like, you know, 25 quid game, bare bones, you know, it was an asset strip, basically. You know, it's a bunch of assets shoved together to give you an idea of like alien invasion stuff, and it was terrible. You know, we've discussed this, um, but this was like the opposite end of the scale. It was just like, how have you made something that really captures the vibe so perfectly? You know, and I think the games I always remember in any given year tend to be the ones where I get something out of it that lasts longer than the game itself. So, yeah, this is why I'm always big on soundtracks and stuff, because they will always keep me coming back. You know, and this, it's those radio shows, you know, the, the real-life radio shows that, um, you know, you can find on Spotify in, like, big old stacks now. And, like, they've become, you know, working music, if you will, you know, stuff in the background for certain work projects where I would just have it there and like an old radio show and it just reminds me of back in the day of doing similar stuff where you just pissing about on the computer at night have stuff like that playing in the background and it's so authentic but the thing it does best is it, it captures that sort of 90s conspiracy theory paranoia that the X-Files you know, and Fire in the Sky sort of gave us and does it by doing some things that are very different to a lot of games we played at that scale, you know, where there are more cinematic moments where, you know, you have perspective changes of people watching you. And that is so crucial to what this game does because that's feeding to the whole paradise. Someone is watching you. Someone is checking out what you're up to like that. And and by having those and it being so unusual for a game of this size, suddenly it creates something, you know, 
and the end result is just fantastic. Yeah, like that for such a small, limited experience as a game. You know, like that where it does a bit of found footage, a bit of cinematic storytelling, and yeah, includes real world stuff as well. Yeah, it blends everything together beautifully. Yeah, and on such a small scale, that is amazing. That they, yeah, Dan McGraw has taken so many different parts from different places and just shoved them together to form this you know, cohesive experience. It's just, it's remarkable on so many levels. And yeah, you know, like I said, I cannot forget about it you know, at all. It just keeps coming up in my head. And there are bigger games this year where I, I look back, oh yeah, I played that. Oh yeah, I played that, like that. And the games I think are really good or whatever like that. And when we were just talking about Resident Evil 4 or Dead Space, stuff like that, games where I'm like, oh yeah, great. Yeah, they did a great job with their work, but it's much for muchness. I played those. You know, it's like as much as they have different stuff in, they aren't changing anything. This just felt fresh in so many ways, you know, in, in terms of games we've been playing anyway, and in terms of like horror bites. It, it just took some of the established things we knew about that type of game and went in a whole different direction. I was like, yes, brilliant, love this. Yeah, you know, I think that when I think about Dan McGrath and his body of work and how just, you know, last year we played Our Lady of Sorrow and we're really taken mm. with that. The fact that he's able to, in my opinion, follow that game up, which we held in high regards, and I'm pretty sure that that made our uh, halfway of the year Horror Bites um, as well, um, or even our halfway game of the year stuff. You know, the fact that he's able to follow up with something that is so much more refined, I think, in the sense of not to say like, oh, there were these shortcomings with Our Lady of Sorrow, but just more refined in his own vision of what he is yeah. setting out to do with Incident at Grove Lake. And, you know, I would say that this experience is stronger, even if you are not in the driver's seat, if you will, mm. um, as much as you were with the previous game where you were in control a lot more and exploring. And I think that with Incident at Grove Lake, it is taking a little bit of control from the player, but if anything, it becomes that much more cinematic. So that when you are in yeah. control, those moments pop in a way that make it feel more, not only involving, but I think it captures the terror of what it must be like to, you know, be abducted and whatnot, or even to find yourself in the midst of a conspiracy. And the fact that he plays around with POV so much more in this, and it makes for a narrative that is that much more engrossing and engaging and terrifying in a way. Um, it is an incredibly, incredibly powerful, um, you know, follow up to what he did just last year, um, and to see already, I believe, is developing something new. Um, it's just one of the, you know, the beautiful bits of doing horror bites in that you stumble upon something randomly, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have this developer that's kind of like on your short list of people that you check in every six months or something on Itchio, and just be like, oh, I wonder if they've done something. If you know, you haven't stumbled upon it on Twitter or whatever, but. Yeah, no, that was one that uh, if we, you know, we were thinking about all the horror bites we've covered this year, that's, if not the top one, that's a top three for me um, as well. Yeah. So it's not surprising to see this one on your list because it was uh, very, very memorable. Yeah. Your number four, then? My number four is Aliens Dark Descent from Tindalos Interactive. And, you know, I, of course, am a massive, massive fan of Alien, Aliens Universe and everything a big fan of real-time strategy games and turn-based strategy games. And I was so very impressed with this game 
because it is able to blend my love of real-time strategy and turn-based into something that feels evolutionary for the genre in which it's in. Um, and I think that a big part of that blending of not only mechanics, um, more importantly, and we talked about it in our review of the game, you know, it is the first game that I've played outside of Alien Isolation that has captured not only a true understanding of how to use the alien and aliens IP and Xenomorph specifically in a way that is actually terrifying. You know, we covered uh, Colonial Marines as well. And that was a game that, well, perhaps not as bad as some people were saying when, you know, the, the uh, infamous nature of that game, it's the worst thing ever made. Like we got to the root of that's not the case, but it did display a flawed understanding of how to use the aliens IP to the best of its ability and actually capturing you know, the terror of that series and, you know, how both, uh, you know, Ridley Scott and James Cameron were able to make two distinctly different tonally, tonal films, but still, you know, terrifying in a way that is wholly unique to those IPs. And to play a strategy game that is able to replicate that, and more importantly, you know, the moment-to-moment -moment little interactions that you have with either hordes or just these one-off skirmishes, and it really does capture that movie magic, I was kind of blown away by because I've never played a real-time strategy game or a turn-based strategy game that has that level of tension to quite to that degree. Of course, you know, with things like XCOM, you know, there are high stakes and everything, of course, uh, given how, you know, frequently death can come if you kind of mess about and are not focused on uh, a specific strategy or you go in ill-prepared. But, you know, from moment to moment in Aliens Dark Descent, I found that, you know, death can come very quickly for your squad mates and similar to XCOM in that sense, right? You don't want to get too attached mm. to anybody because of how quickly things can, uh, you know, go awry. But ultimately I found that this game did a really great job at just ratcheting up the tension with every single moment. And even if somebody like me that went to the options and chose to play where when you go to access your specials, it freezes the moment, which makes it, you know, a little bit more uh, manageable. Uh, at the same time, though, I think that the level of threat in that game is really sort of respectful, I suppose, to the IP and not treating xenomorphs or, you know, the permutations there within um, as something that could be considered fodder. Because every single mm -hmm. enemy that I came across in that game instilled the same amount of fear in me as a queen or something along those lines. And that is getting at the root of understanding the IP that you're adapting and utilizing. More importantly, it's giving you the functionality of a squad that furthermore is representative of elements that we've seen in plenty of Alien and Aliens films at this point. And yet you never are allowed to feel like you're totally in control of a situation. You're never allowed to feel invulnerable, right? Which is very much in line with James Cameron's approach with Aliens in that you have these macho machine gun toting badasses and yet that doesn't mean anything when they go in, you know, half cocked and they're kind of like, oh, you know, we're the badasses of the universe. And yet we see how that ends. And the game is able to capture that sort of energy of empowering the player with a multitude of abilities. But at the same time, it's on the player if they're going to utilize those to the best of their ability, because if not, death will come quick and the uh, consequences of death can be very unforgiving. That they can. I mean, for what it is, you know, in terms of being a real-time strategy game, to me, most of all, it's Colonial Marines Manager. You, know, you are basically being Gorman, 
you know you are because you know as much as you have control to a degree they automatically do stuff you know you have a little hey you know lay fire here suppress fire there whatever you know you can do all that but ultimately they, they are at the mercy of whatever the situation is and you can guide them as best you can but there's that wonderful feeling of helplessness and you know that's the idea it's like you don't you don't want to be a gorman you want to get them through each mission but you can have the, that moment you know where you kind of hope that a ripley would just fucking take control and get them out of there you know like sort of situation and yeah that, that's probably the most accurate thing about it that it really does just capture that helplessness of like even though you are fully stocked fully packed up marines this is still a massive situation i think that's always been the beauty of aliens as an idea is that one alien can take out a bunch of fairly regular people yeah okay that makes sense you know like that but what do you do if you get fully trained people you know come and wipe one alien out easy really might lose one or two people sure because you know the alien is crafty well you have a stack of them you know and you have the the odds might it's no different to the odds of the first film it's just you know it's brilliant in the way that works and this game is the one game that's really captured that yeah it, it really does get the idea of how that is and in a way that no other aliens game has understood Yep. yep, and I'll, the last thing I'll say is that this game does what Fireteam did in the sense that it expands on, or at least I suppose it's exposing uh, gamers to the expanded universe of the Xenomorph morphology. You get to fight a multitude of different types of Xenomorphs. You know, you got the, the bigger guys, you've got the faster moving, more nimbly ones, um, and there's even a new enemy type in there. And I think that it's very remarkable that they're able to include these things and it fits it makes sense whereas when fire team it felt a little bit more like we're just going to give you everything because you need a bunch of stuff to shoot at but in dark descent they include these things they give them narrative context for why they're being included more importantly everything is a threat a strategic threat in a new and varied way which makes combat in my opinion uh from stopping to get overly stale i think if it was the typical thing where it's like Waylon yutani xenomorphs face huggers a queen and that's it you know that's gonna that's gonna get you by for a couple of hours but when you expand the pool and it's not only you know from a combat standpoint but a narrative one as well um, i found that that was just again a smart utilization of the brand in a way that we haven't necessarily seen and it you know it's the thing i always come back to where it's like oh we're finally going to explore what the dark horse comics from the 90s explored which is that expanded universe and to see that in a game I mean, what more could you want as an Aliens fan? But exactly. we are now going to get to the bottom of your number three pick. And my number three is Dredge for Black Salt Games. We will come back to that in a moment after our break. <laughs> it finally <laughs> I happened. thought that might be one. <laughs> well, then we will go to my number three pick, which is My Friendly Neighborhood from John and Evan Siminski. That is not on my list. So... As I detailed in our review of this game for the inventory, this game I was blown away by in the fact that it's able to take the survival horror roots that it's so clearly, uh, you know, trying to champion. And it is doing so in a way that feels partially homage to, you know, of course, things like Resident Evil and whatnot, but 
more importantly, it retains its own identity throughout every single mechanic of the game. And that identity is imparted on equipment. It's imparted on the world itself. It's imparted on the characters and the narrative in a way that feels unapologetic that, you know, it's difficult to to really signify because it's the thing where it's like, I looked at this game initially and I was like, you know, that just kind of looks like mascot horror, right? Something akin yeah. to a five, five nights at Freddy's. So you're going to make something that is typically uh, fuzzy and lovely and you're going to make it terrifying. And this game does that to a degree, but it doesn't do it in the traditional manner of like, well, we're just going to put blood on the puppets and give them fangs and talons and they'll mm. swear, right? It doesn't do any of that. And it's so much stronger for that. And, you know, yes. the way in which it's able to instill dread, the way it's able, able to make a game that conceivably kids could play, but it's still ominous and it's still foreboding um, is a v- incredibly difficult balance, I think. And, you know, the game has had a warm reception, I would say. Um, but at the same time, I don't know that it's necessarily getting the amount of praise it deserves for actually nailing that balance because of the fact that when you walk into a room sometimes you'll see a puppet that hasn't noticed you. So it's like, well, okay, I can just walk by it. But it's still adding something to the experience. You walk behind one and it just starts muttering nonsense to itself. Or it starts talking about how it hurt somebody previously that they discovered in a different part of the studio. Like little things like that that don't have to rely on traditional trappings of horror, whether that be you know, graphic violence, blood gore, or even expletives, right? And the fact that for me, a 31-year-old man, to be actually kind of freaked out by a puppet that is just kind of like <laughs> mumbling gibberish to itself in a corner of a room is like pretty uncomfortable when you're going through this environment and whatnot. Um, so the fact that it's able to continually be emblematic of survival horror, but doing it on its own terms, you know, the, I came back to uh, the firearms of the game, which you don't wield traditional guns in this game. It's always something that has to do with like stationary. So instead of a pistol, you have uh, a gun, a Rolodex gun that basically fires off sticky notes that have letters of the alphabet. Or instead of a shotgun, you have a gun that fires a typewriter scroll that, you know, uh, basically acts as a shotgun spread, but, you know, it's not re- relying on shells and, uh, and gunpowder and whatnot. So the fact that this game is able to, you know, abide by the trappings and the sort of blueprint of survival horror, but doing so with its own vernacular and that yeah. vernacular, I feel they are uncompromising in, in almost all aspects of the game um, is something that, you know, on paper sounds intriguing, but in practice, it could be very difficult to accomplish to the degree that it is here. And, you know, I'll say that uh, I find it to be one of my favorite experiences of the year. And previously we've talked about games such as like tortured souls, right? Where it's like, okay, clearly maybe a little too in retrospect uh, in line with trying to be a Resident Evil or something like that. But yeah, with my friendly neighborhood, um, it's the type of thing where it's like everything from either a cosmetic or a gameplay standpoint is tied to this very unique um, identity that the game has. Um, did you ever get a chance to go back and play this? I assume not because you're just so busy, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, like a little more, but uh, yeah, not much, unfortunately. But yeah, like I said at the time, you know, what I played of it. I, I get why a lot of mascot horror is what it is. And, you know, I, I get why that ended up appealing to people that um, you know, make it very obviously scary. That works for kids because you don't have the same subtlety appreciation when you're a child because 
you're not going to pick up on it the same way. They would understand that something is a bit off, but not quite the same way. So yeah, it's like the easy way. You know, we always look at these things and go, you know, to sell anything to people, it's the whole keep it simple, stupid, isn't it? You know, you have to, because not everyone's going to appreciate nuance. Um, so yeah, make it so that dum dums can get it. I think is the best <laughs> way of putting it. <laughs> and yeah, this is actually a really sophisticated game by comparison it's made by adults for adults you know who happen to have a nostalgia for childhood things so by as you said making them normal for all intents and purposes it means that's more unnerving because what is wrong with them is less obvious from the outset you know like that they don't have to be like Poppy's Poppy's Playtime or or Gardner Ban Ban, or even Five Nights at Freddy's, they can have a subtler, sort of more sophisticated uh, approach to horror. You know, so while it works for adults, I think it's also a good stepping stone for children, young people, weaned into this world of horror on those things, to have something a bit that carries that on, but takes it to another level. You know, like so, yeah. I, I think it's going to end up being quite important in that regard. Yeah, having kids and noticing what they pick up on in terms of like what YouTubers pick up on and stuff like that. This doesn't get the same coverage. Yeah, and I think that's very telling. Uh, as some games, I, I think that is just because it doesn't keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, it, it does make it a bit more, you know, uh, wider appeal of what it's doing so yeah but those kids will appreciate in years to come i think if they play those games you know i think maybe that's the thing that doesn't always get mentioned with this is like there are a lot of these games for children but they don't ever actually play them yeah they just watch videos of it they they know about the characters play them nah they can do that Uh, my son is like obsessed with five nights already does he play them very much no he's been terrified of playing most of the time yeah like that He's only just so it happens like that, you know. But he reads stories on it, wants to watch the movie, you know, reads all the lore on it, and that's a really cool way. But we've all done that in some way, shape, or form. That's fantastic about that. So, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however, you cha-ching. from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Things, games like this are going to be great yeah, for that in when they sort of grow up and in, evolve in terms of games like that. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, I think it's going to be special in that regard. Yeah, I'll be very interested to see, you know, once we, uh, you know, reconvene towards December, right? And we start to see people's games of the year list come out and seeing um, whether or not this game is appreciated even more so once people start thinking back of the year and sort of what is able to serve as both a homage, but also crafting its very own identity. But we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive into your number three pick and continue all the way down to our favorite games of the year so far. And we are back from our break. And Neil, what is your number two pick? Amnesia the Bunker by Frictional Games. We will come back to that. <laughs> hey, I thought as much. <laughs> so what's your number two, Dre? Yep. So my number two is Dredge from Black oh, Salt Games. <laughs> we finally got to circle back to that gem, which we talked about, um, you know, not too long ago. And yeah, no. you know, since we covered the game, uh, I have, you know, put in countless more hours into that. And it's kind of just reinforced for me. It is the perfect blending of, again, this sort of, relaxing twee horror, if you will, and then also still having roots in survival horror, um, which if anything, it's one of those types of games where the more comfortable you get, the more you start to seek out the survival horror, more leaning aspects of the game. And the game itself is really paced in the fact that the player is given ultimately the freedom to dictate, Mm. you know, what type of experience they want per playthrough or per session rather that you're playing this game. Um, And we talked about it a lot with, obviously, our coverage of Dredge, but also with Darkwood, the fact that these games give the players enough breadcrumbs to to inevitably find the sort of narrative arc or the narrative uh, sort of route that these games have for their endgame. But there's nothing pushing you or rushing you to those points, right? It really is the player gets to decide, okay, well, maybe I'll follow this mission that will take me to a new part of a map, a semi-open world map that I haven't been to previously. And then maybe I'll spend another two hours in that area fishing or forming relationships or missions in that area. But, you know, it's on the player to dictate basically the pacing with which they want to get to that end game. And so with a game such as Dredge, when people say, oh, it's, you know, 15, 20 hour game, it could be very much a longer experience than that. I mean, I've played... 10 hours and I don't feel like I'm near the end of that game because of the Mm. fact that I am dictating the pace with which I go out and I'm either scavenging or whether I want to get each and every upgrade for my boat before venturing into much more dangerous waters, which of course I got a taste of very early on, uh, as Mm. we noted in our coverage of it, where it's like, yeah, you know, I'll just go explore this area. And then the game very quickly says, no, 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 you're not ready for that. Um, Which is a really difficult balance, I think, right? The idea that you teach the player these very difficult lessons, but at the same time, the penalty is not crippling because otherwise that forms this sort of almost antagonist relationship where it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll take a break. And then a a day break turns into a week, a week turns into a month, and then you don't go back to the game. Mm -hmm. Whereas something like Dredge, that balance is immaculate to the degree that I'm still playing it, you know, this many months after its release. And I haven't finished it yet, but it's the thing where it's like, 
that's on purpose. It's not the fact that yeah. it's like, oh, I just can't get through this part or this or that. It's like, no, I'm enjoying my time with it to the degree that it's going to be a much larger, longer experience um, than you know whatever it says on how long to beat dot com will take to beat it. Yeah, I mean, it's compelling in a way that, yeah, I think, you know, our situations coming into playing it are very different. You know, I was playing for a view, had a good amount of time, but still, you know, um, you're always wary of that. But doing that doesn't always mean like, oh, you just rush for a game, then do the next one. Because, you know, especially for me, where it was always like, fuck it, I'll take three games on at once and I'll do a bit of this, bit of that, bit of that, you know, but dredge, like... Even at the time, I was had other things to play, but it was the one I kept deviating to each time, and because it had that loop, that compelling loop, I just kept, you know, on one level, it reminded me of Wind Waker, you know, The Legend of Zelda, Wind Waker, in terms of the, like sailing and that thing, and just being out in the ocean and just how that was, like that. It, it has something about that, there, you know, even though it's not even remotely like it, you know, but um, it brought like a personal nostalgia there. But also, as we discussed, you know, previously, that sort of curiosity of like, um, you know, branching out from what you know in that game and finding out more and more and more, you know, it really feeds into that whole sort of eldritch horror thing that's going on where you are getting curious beyond what you should be, you know, you know the warning is there don't do it that sort of thing but but yeah you're naturally human you're going to keep looking and looking and looking and like that and it works so well you know that, that is the best thing about this game is it just gets that you know and we've seen so many games that do the whole cosmic horror thing like that yeah and you know when the go-to is obviously lovecraft and you know that's understandable why it, it it's always very hard to separate that you know, and very obvious Lovecraftian things from actual cosmic horror things, you know. And I think when we were talking about Dredge, you know, we mentioned like Stuart Gordon was always like fucking brilliant at that, you know. And Brian Yusner, they, they, they were brilliant at like separating what that you know, Lovecraft did into like just being like the horror of it, you know, the cosmic horror of it, you know. It doesn't have to be all Cthulhu and fucking all the usual stuff, you know. It can be and you know it can capture that essence without just being you know oh okay it's doing that doing that doing that checklist sort of nonsense which you know some games are fine if they really commit to that bit and they're like yeah we want to make a game that is basically a replication of lovecraft like that and we've seen a few games that have done that and done it well right? but when you get that sort of vagueness about it and you're relying heavily on that side of it Nah, it, it doesn't work. Here is just the perfect example of the between, you know, where you, you have a bit of both. And it's not like the core. You know, I think anyone playing this, you know, for the first hour or two wouldn't even see it. And yet it's the most, ironically, the most Lovecraftian horror game I think I've played in years. Because the structure of it, in terms of how his storytelling was, you know, it's there, you know, it's there, but it's still like not going, it's not using those tropes it has as a crutch, you know, it's not using those character types and things like that. Um, I think 
I thought we always talk about amnesia, the amnesia series being a really good example of using a bit of that, you know, without it being like in your face, you know, like that. But this is definitely the best balance I've seen of that. I would equate this game to being the most siren-like call eldritch yeah. Cthulhu horror that I've played because of the fact that when I recommend this game to people that don't even have really an interest in horror, it's the mm. type of thing where I say, well, play it for an hour. You'll see how quickly an hour turns into three just based on that core gameplay loop that is very much devoid of the horror aspects of this game. So mm. that way, by the time you get to your 10th hour of the game and you're sort of very invested in either upgrading or just exploring or whatnot, you are at the point where you can actually enjoy the horror aspects of the game because if you get to the horror side of things too quickly from just exploring in the wrong regions it's like that could be off-putting but the fact that you have to go out of your way to find those and the game is not overbearing with the horror and front-loading it i mean it just it makes for an experience that i feel that people that aren't tr traditionally horror fans could get into very easily and then if anything the more the mystery starts being dredged up of like oh what's going on here what is the reasoning behind this? And then through exploration, you're at least prepared to handle some of the more horror aspects of this maritime horror game. Yeah. Um, you know, it was quite funny, actually. We were just talking before about, you know, like um, kid-friendly horror and like introductions. And, you know, this has elements of games like Stardew Valley to it, you know, in terms of like, oh, you know, rinse, repeat like that. And like my son sort of turned me on to a game on itch year called uh, Pumpkin Panic, which is basically like a, a you know a fucked up version of Stardew Valley. It, it, it has some boat stuff, it has the fishing stuff, but you know, you know there are skinwalkers and things like that, and you shouldn't go near the deer in it. And, and instantly, I was like, oh, okay, that, that kind of combines both things. You know, it's like it's like if taking something very kid friendly in terms of like genre and style. And adding this sort of spooky vibe to it, like that, you know, for an itchy game, you know, it had we, you know, had the schedule we've had, you know, I would probably would have said, hey, this is one we should add next week, you know, for, for Horror Bites. But you no, know, it's like, it's on the long side for a Horror Bites game, but it's about an hour. But yeah, it's great to see that it kind of feels like a continuation of what Dredge has done. But also like what we were talking about before with my friendly neighborhood, you know, like that. So maybe that's the thing. It's just, we're getting that next stage and the sophisticated games are going to inform the casual things, yeah, you know, a bit more. So yeah, this is uh yeah, fascinating development, I think, with this. So yeah, I think Dredge will actually have more impact than people think, I think, in terms of like moving horror forward, especially because it doesn't put horror at the forefront. And I think that's basically what we were just talking about with My Friendly Neighbourhood. It's not overtly trying to be horror from the outset, it, but it's there. You know, the unsettling nature of it is in the background and you grow to see it. You know. Yeah, and it's the type of game where, you know, we haven't been promised uh, DLC or anything like that. But um, I feel like if I was to run this game back, it would not be the type of thing where I was like, oh, you know, kind of bummed out or dejected about the lack of new content because you fall into that gameplay loop so easily that this can end up being, you know, that 30, 40 hour game, even if it's not intended to be that long. Um, yeah. Yeah. But we are going to move on to my number one. Your number one. <laughs> yeah. Because we know your number we one. We know my so. number one. <laughs> 
So my number one, you know, and it took a lot of thinking about this because it's so many great games. Mm -hmm. So very difficult. But again, I go back to what I was saying before. It's about what it made me think. And that is Oxenfree 2. Hey, there's a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, surprised me a bit because, you know, I I like Oxenfree a lot. I'm very fond of it. And its impact on generally playing games like this in the first place. Mm. But yeah, I think we had this discussion only recently, so yeah, I'm not going to go too big on detail. But sure. it was just that whole the way it approached a sequel. Yeah, you know, I think that really did it for me. You know, it's not big on the horror elements, I suppose, if you're going for very traditional sort of things. But yeah, I don't really care about that in terms of like uh, picking these games. Yeah. So, yeah, the idea that it goes in a different direction in terms of having different characters, whilst also referencing its own legacy, and that being like a meta-commentary on making a sequel and dealing with a legacy and the haunting of that. Yeah, and I, the more I think about it, the more I think it's intentional. So it, it just ends up being a spectacular game. You know, I don't want to go too much into it now because we really did just talk about it recently yeah you know i know we i mean i know i just said about dredge and then we carried on fucking talking about dredge for the minute, but still <laughs> like at the same time it, it's yeah I, I don't want to sort of contradict anything i said then because mm-hmm. you know, I, i've added more to my thinking of this game since then and i still look back at what i said then and think no that was pretty succinct and i think that worked properly with how i you know, I was right in what I felt when I played that game like that. It's just that now my appreciation for it has grown with that extra few weeks since then. Yeah, you know, the more that I think about the game, it really is my ideal sequel to mm. a game that I was already a big fan of. You know, my, the older I get, and maybe it has more to do with a uh, lack of free time the older one gets, but, you know, I don't want to play something that is just building upon the original in a traditional sense where it's more of what you got. Perhaps the scope is a bit larger, perhaps, you know, the stakes are even higher, but I'm more interested in a game such as this that is able to refine what was so good about the original. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to deliver an experience that is drastically different, but I think that it needs to hone in on what was so strong about the original. And, you know, for me, I found that it was a much more narratively refined game than the original because of the fact, and I brought this up in our chat, that there's less of a party, right? The party is not five teens. It's two people together, and then you know you have the walkie-talkie so you can communicate. But the walkie-talkie aspect and having people that are not in your immediate area, but that still can give you you know information about the island. They can give you objectives, which I think bleeds perfectly into the world being a little bit bigger. Um, it just, it ended up being a sequel that I said it was surprising. It was your number one, but I didn't mean that in like a dismissive way. It was just more so in thinking about, you know, Oxenfree two and it not being perhaps in line with a lot of traditional sequels where it's just kind of more of the same, but if anything, it leans into the history of the world of Oxenfree more than, you know, Edwards Island specifically, but still being in direct relation to it. Um, and I think that, at the same time, the map of this 
a new environment being bigger isn't at the expense of the storytelling. If anything, it's one of those semi-open world games that, if anything, it allows exploration and storytelling to really complement one another. Instead of it being this you know, larger environment that lacks as much meaning as the smaller environment from the previous game, um, it feels like it is storytelling that's more attuned with it getting bigger, but not to the degree that it's overall a detriment to design or our engagement with the narrative. Um, yeah. And I love the decision to introduce a new character. It would be so easy to go back to a character that we were, you know, the protagonist, the original, and expanding on their story outright. And the fact that they showed enough restraint to be like, no, we we're going to introduce two new characters. They're the central point of a majority of the game. And then we'll return to some familiar faces in that, you know, halfway through third act um, was a great deal of restraint, I think. And it ends up making for uh, a game that I think the, the moral nature of some of these uh, predicaments and the characters and decisions you have to make, if anything, just feels like a stronger sort of continuation of what was laid with the original, I'll say. But yeah, yeah. that was in terms of as far as sequels go or direct sequels, very, very strong showing for the year. Yeah. I mean, it does just take the idea of the paranormal and makes it feel more like fate and destiny, you know, like that in a way that is permeating throughout this game. The idea that everything you do is preordained to some degree and that you have no choice over it. And I love that because it just makes the ending so bleak and it makes the ending of the first game so bleak. I think that is the biggest thing about this is you gain a fresh appreciation for the original Oxen Free based on the events of this game because of the implications are brought up in this game. And yeah, that's it. That That is why it worked so well as a sequel is because not only does it change and shift what it means, you know, it, it changes the original with it, you know, like that. And not in a way that feels like you know, they're just doing it to sort of retrofit what was there like it when you go back to Oxenfree it makes sense everything makes sense like that and it's beautiful in that regard so yeah the last moments of this game are just like so wonderfully bittersweet it the, the whole style of this game is just something else you know, like that it's such sophistication in what's been made here so yeah <laughs> surprising even to be but still at the same time it just feels right yeah to be up there any sequel that is able to make you have a greater appreciation for the original and an even a new appreciation for it um is definitely you know probably the highest compliment i think you could give a sequel which is uh i suppose quite fitting for what we're going to talk about last to no one's surprise uh my game of the year <laughs> so far is amnesia the bunker from our uh you know the Undead Pals at Frictional Games. So, you know, you and I are on record as being big fans of the Amnesia series. Um, that was one of the first games we covered was Amnesia Rebirth for the podcast. Um, and while we haven't covered Dark Descent, we've, you know, referenced it countless times at this point. Um, and I was incredibly surprised by the left turn that the bunker takes, right? Which is that it's, instead of being this straightforward linear thing, it is an immersive sim, which 
could never have guessed that the Amnesia series would take that route. And yet it is so fundamentally adapted and in line, I think, with Frictional Games's, um, you know, uh, approach to game design and just horror in general. You know, something that we talked about with Rebirth was the fact that at every turn, uh, the Amnesia series has tried something new, right? Maybe uh, a machine for pigs withstanding because I haven't played that one. But I think that from Dark Descent to Rebirth to now the bunker, they have fundamentally taken the gameplay and kind of turned it on its head. And whether that be from the gameplay or let me back up. The implications of changes either are representative of the gameplay or a narrative standpoint, right? With Rebirth, it was a little more narrative. And with The Bunker, it is fundamentally changing the approach to gameplay in a way that gives you, you know, an unprecedented for the series amount of freedom and choice and how you want to explore this world. And something that we've been talking about a lot with, you know, survival horror games, specifically our chat with um, Darkwood, is that the player has the ability to tackle objectives in a manner that they see fit. And with something like the bunker, when you have an environment that is not the largest, the fact that the player has the choice with which they want to attack certain objectives or seeking out certain equipment or items and whatnot, it makes that environment feel 10 times larger because of you know that ever-looming threat of the beast that is stalking the halls and whatnot. And the fact that you're able to tell a story that is as engrossing, as reflective of the environment itself in an immersive sim, I found to be one of the unsung um, accomplishments of the bunker. Because the nature of an immersive sim, you played it differently, I played it differently, we're going to prioritize things differently. And you know from our chat, earlier this year about the game, I feel like we had a similar or the same understanding of the story that's being told. You know, the fact that it's immersive sim, we're going to stumble upon letters at a different rate or notes at a different rate. And the fact that you're able to tell a story that is as involving or as reflective of events that happened prior to your arrival, but they don't necessarily feel like you're reading some ancient scripture that happened 10, 20 years ago. It feels like this narrative unfolded like 15 minutes before your guy woke up. The fact that you can have that level of urgency with the narrative and be unable to predict what piece of information players are going to come to first. Like I thought from a storytelling standpoint within an immersive sim, that was very impressive. And more importantly, the fact that they're that the team at Frictional is able to, you know, take the trappings of an amnesia game and then apply it to the immersive sim nature of things. And for the first time for the series, incorporate a weapon, right? Initially, some people, you know, myself included, I was a little skeptical of like, well, they've kind of exhausted this non-combat approach to horror. But the fact that they're able to include a weapon and it is not this empowering item that it normally should be, I think was, you know, a brilliant approach to including combat because combat is not just used against the beast it's again the best example of an immersive sim. You can utilize, you know, combat towards how you traverse environments or how you want to play around with the variables that are, you know, within the bunker. And so that ended up being something that was not only shocking, but it provided an unprecedented amount of replay value, I think, for the Amnesia series specifically, in a way that I've already returned to this a second time. And I'm sure, you know, I'll return to it a third time and just the vast 
amount of options for how I want to traverse the bunker itself, what I want to prioritize. And then, of course, the fact that you have this ever persistent monster that you might be able to scare it away for a little bit, but it's going to come right back and it's you know hunting you throughout, um, which was a level of dread that I don't think ever really dissipated outside of, you know, 60, 90 seconds. Yeah. I mean, doesn't it just feel like that same thing we had before where we like, you look at something like um, Shadow of Mordor and his nemesis system and you're like, why is no one else copying this? Whereas that turned out to be, you know, they fucking copyrighted the fucking system so no one could do it. But here it was like Alien Isolation had done it so much of this before and we always look back so you know again of what we called early you know very close to the episode we did on an age of rebirth and yeah we always wondered it's like why is someone making a game like that again you know something that has that survival horror elements to it and yeah when this it became more apparent that this game was like that like that but with that bit more immersive sim sort of style to it in terms of flexibility well then it was like okay like that you know this is something and frictional just constantly moving the bar with what they're doing evolving ideas that feel natural you know it's like you could look at it and go oh yeah well it's just doing this from this and this from that like sure that's what all games do but it's how that is implemented and how it still fits the series as a whole. You know, in maybe one way, it doesn't feel exactly like every other amnesia game in that the storytelling isn't so straightforward. Yeah, but but it's there. Like that, it, it adapts to the changes it's made. But everything about it does have, mechanically especially, have some sort of connection to what amnesia has done. You know, light sources. Again, giving you more and more in each game in terms of like comfort, like where we went from fucking candles and whatever, like, and not looking at things to sort of avoid going mad to having a gun and a generator and all this stuff. And it's still not being enough, you know, it's still feeling powerless. You know, when we were talking about Aliens Dark Descent earlier, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's like the idea of like power having some sort of fight back, but it not being enough. So it, it gives you a little bit of comfort. But in the moment, there's still a risk in using it as a thing, you know, and a gun in this game is as good as it was in Alien Isolation. It, sure, it'll help you in fights you know, in some ways, or it'll get you past certain situations. But the big thing about it is noise and the noise it makes and what attract is attracted to that noise. And you don't want to do that. So it's brilliant. You know? And again, weirdly, when we go back to the talk of aliens, you know, you think of that whole bit in aliens. It's like they've got all these weapons and the aliens are in a place where if you go shooting here, you're going to set off a fucking nuclear explosion, basically, at some point. Like that. And it's like, so now it's like, nope, nobody use your guns. Nobody use your guns like that. Like that. So there's consequence, you know, if you are to use them. But the freedom to use them is still there. And the human choice to use them. So, yeah, while not quite that apocalyptic, it's still a decision that can go so wrong. Like that, if you don't handle it properly. And, and I love that about this game. It just, 
gives you the right amount of tools and gives you the right balance of threats to go against it to make it even out basically to be no different from any other amnesia game that's come before when you really boil it down yeah i think that that's the biggest challenge when continuing or making a sequel to a series is that are you going to implement change to the degree that is so radical that is implemented in a manner that doesn't make it nearly as smooth as I think the bunker is and in including these new gameplay mechanics, that you end up with something that doesn't even resemble the starting point. And I found that, you know, as drastic as the gameplay alterations are or inclusions are in Amnesia the Bunker, it feels like an amnesia game from the opening moments. And that's not just because your guy has, you know, amnesia when he wakes up, basically. Um, it is the type of thing where it feels so in line with the game that when you get to the end of the bunker, you almost think back to like Dark Descent. I was like, do I remember how that game played perfectly? Because yeah. this feels like just a natural continuation of what made, you know, Dark Descent, what made Amnesia uh, as remarkable of games as they are. And, you know, with something like The Bunker too, I think it was really great to watch people actually, you know, begin to experiment. You know, everybody plays through it the first time, kind of like, okay, I need to get through this. And then people came back and experimented with the different variables and physics in the game. And the fact that, you know, on social media, whether it was the creative director over there that was sharing some uh, little like tips and tricks with what you can do and whatnot, but even our own, you know, people want to get more in depth with Amnesia the Bunker, go back and listen to our episode on it because, you know, the ways in which you can use every item has more than one utilization for it. You might think, well, the gun, you know, it's pretty straightforward. No, there's, of course, multiple utilizations for that. And, you know, the most interesting aspects of utilizing an item very rarely are the intended use of them, which I think is, you know, the best example of uh, an immersive sim. Because, you know, no matter whether you're in your first, second, third, or fourth, or fifth hour with the game, you're constantly learning new tools and tips and tricks and things that could make your next playthrough, when you choose to prioritize a different approach or a different section of the bunker to explore first, could go completely different, um, which, if anything, you know, is the root of what makes Immersive Sims uh, that rewarding of a subgenre. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, well, yeah, it, it's just no surprise in a way that Frictional made their way into a, a games of the year list again with us. But, uh, you yeah, know, and I, it would take something for it not to be up there again at the end of the year. But um, yeah. again, when I go back to what I was saying before, you know, with, with uh, Oxenfree 2, is, yeah, it's just one of those games where the more I think about it, the more sense it makes, you know, like that. Like that. The uncertainty that came with playing it around and before release kind of melts away a bit. The more you think about it, the more you see other people talk about it, you're like, oh, yeah this game does something and that's happened to a lot of games i've loved over the years when i think of dishonored 2 or hitman you know like that games i i really liked and had an appreciation for but then you learn a deeper level to them through other people you know and how they react to it and you're like oh yeah actually i could do like this and suddenly wow the game opens up in a different way you know when we're talking about dark before it is um, one of those games where watching other people talk about it kind of helps you sort of understand it in a different way and ease into it in a way that you wouldn't have maybe. And um, that's what I like about doing this podcast, you know, is that 
maybe what we talk about helps someone look at a game differently and goes, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I'll try that because you know, now I know this about it. It's good. You know? And yeah. So this is the thing about this list so far, really. You know, and the whole thing we've done at this point of the year is there's so many different games, so many games we couldn't even put on here already that just all of them have something about them that really makes them stand out. And, you know, I could list 10 games this year already that I would put ahead of Resident Evil 4 or Dead Space, which is not to denote that they're bad and say, they're, oh, they're bad games. It's just that it's freshness. I want freshness in this genre. I want things that either utilize nostalgia in a good way and jump forward with it or you know they do something completely different and there have been plenty of games that have done that to my mind better than the big games they're great they keep the horror genre ticking over nicely and get you know more casual observer interested again because they get to go back and play resident evil 4 they get to go back and play dead space and that's great like they will have the same with alone in the dark to a lesser degree later this year so fantastic we we get all those things but yeah the games i've loved this most this year have been just so different you know so they don't feel uncomfortable in each other's company but they are also very different as as they are well it's my favorite part of doing the halfway games of the year and it's why you know we're going to make it a uh, we've begun to make it a tradition in that we get to revisit games that we have either, you know, played previously or, you know, get to experience games for the first time. And, you know, it's the type of thing where once you get removed from anything, it doesn't matter if it's a game, a book, a film, a, an album, a song, what have you, you know, your impression can change due to different influences, whether or not, you know, you've stepped away from something and r- ruminating on it more, or just the fact that you've played games that have tried to do something similar. And sometimes it's to a lesser degree. And it makes you appreciate certain things that you already enjoyed even more so, right? And I think that it's great to have these types of conversations because we can, you know, maybe uh, not to give ourselves too much credit, but maybe, you know, get people to think about certain things a little bit differently or even, you know, each other. I mean, if anything, your praise for uh, Oxenfree 2 has inspired me to not only go back and do a new game plus of the original Oxenfree, but then immediately follow it up with a replay of Oxenfree 2, just so that way I can have that connection between the two of them that clearly you did, because that was something I noted when we covered Oxenfree 2 and Oxenfree and that, you know, I never played in New Game Plus. I lacked that sort of um, narrative connection that was so strong for you. And so now I have a reason to go back and revisit those at some point. Don't know when I have the time, but I certainly want to do it at some <laughs> point. Um, but I think that that's something that, you know, we wouldn't have had that sort of conversation perhaps if we weren't doing, well, maybe we would at the end of the year, but it's just nice to have a week a little bit after halfway point of the year where we get to reflect. Um, Cause I think that especially in games, there's so much coming out at this point that um, reflecting on the year shouldn't be limited to, you know, the month of December. Um, so it feels like this is a natural point for us to kind of, regroup, collect ourselves and take a look at what we've played so far while still being very open to, you know, what's down the line. Yeah. And, you know, I think maybe we're lucky in that sense that we won't have to have the same boring conversation that a lot of general sort of podcasts would have in terms of like talking about Tears of the Kingdom and Baldur's Gate 3. And it's like great as they may be. It's just like 
everyone's going to be doing that like that and you know even here you know like we could have just easily just gone oh yes Resident Evil 4 oh, Dead Space like that and yeah it would be understandable because you know they are standouts for a reason but yeah I'm glad that we have that sort of structure where we can have such a wide variety of things to talk about at this point and still struggle to keep everything we want in a conversation you know so even when we get to the end of the year is going to be tough even you know to get a top 10 and Admit things is going to be terrible, terrible stuff like that. <laughs> it's going to be even, you know, the inclination is, oh, well, you get twice the picks for the end of the year, game of the year stuff. So it's like, well, it'll be easier. No, no, no. It gets much more difficult. <laughs> yeah, especially, especially when you've got stuff like Alan Wake 2 and Alone in the Dark coming. It's just like, it's going to be hell. Hell, I tell you. <laughs> hell, but in the best way possible, even if in the moment it might not seem that way. But, um, you know, not only... Look forward to continuing many horrifying conversations to come for the year, but getting the opportunity, you know, at the very end of the year to regroup and look at the year of 2023 as a whole. And, you know, as you mentioned, we have some major releases still on the horizon, along with, you know, both AAA and indie titles. And I'm sure there's going to be stuff that comes out two weeks before our game of the year lists need to be finalized. (laughs) And yet it'll throw everything into whack, which was definitely the case last year. But, Mm. um, as always, it is a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Back at you. Until the next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can follow our Twitter account for Horror Bites also at HorrorBites underscore SR. You can join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. And last but not least, you can email us at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.